as we stand. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. Pray, Lord God, that you would speak its truth to each of our hearts, that you would challenge and encourage each one of us this morning. And pray, Lord God, that only my words that are of you would live and have being in this place. Amen. Amen. Please do sit. If you've closed your Bible, we are on page 1,232 in the book of Jude. I was reading the news yesterday on the BBC website, and it struck me that in nearly every article I read, the word misled or deceive came up. The Leveson inquiry. Who said what to who? Who deceived who? Who misled who? Bankers and investors. Capital One were fined this week for misleading their customers for deceptive marketing techniques. And that's just a couple of examples. And deception and misleading isn't just something that politicians and bankers and journalists engage in. I'm sure we don't have to think hard to recall a time when we've felt misled, when we've felt like we've been coerced into doing something or agreed to do something under false pretenses. I don't know if any of you have ever started a job and you start your new job and you find that you're expected to do 101 things that just weren't in the job description. Or perhaps, and this one has happened to me, uh, your friend asks you to help with a really fun and exciting activity and you arrive uh, to help with it and you find out that when your friend asked you, they knew that the only job left was toilet cleaning. (laughs) We live in a world that is constantly trying to make the truth something less than what it is. A world that is so concerned to get us on side, so concerned uh, to bring us round to its way of thinking, that it's more than happy to only tell us half the story, to only show us half the picture to only show us the good things. What's more, though, is that misleading and being misled is not just a preoccupation of the secular world. It's not just a preoccupation of secular advertising. It happens with the gospel as well. And that is where we are this morning in the book of Jude. If you were here last week, you would have heard Elizabeth speak on the first half of Jude. The false teachers believe that that because they are under grace, their sins, past, present and future, will be forgiven. They think that they are spiritually superior. They are using grace to justify continuing in their own ungodly and wicked ways. If we look to verse 15, the word ungodly occurs four times in that verse to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude is not just mentioning ungodliness in passing. It is the substance, the core of what he has to say. As far as Jude is concerned, judgment is not far away. It's nearby nearby both in time and in concern. Here, Jude is quoting the prophecy of Enoch, a popular Jewish text. According to Genesis 5, 
Enoch is of the seventh generation of, after Adam, and he is a man who walked with God. The book of Enoch's not in the canon, it's not in the Old Testament. But the fact that Jude quotes it here, we can reasonably assume that it would have carried credibility and authority. For the recipients of Jude's letter, for the true believers, these words had meaning and impact. The judgment that Enoch spoke of wasn't just a thing of the past. It wasn't just something that was for then. It was real and it was present. It mattered there and then. And it mattered because of the ungodly. The repetition of ungodly and all make this powerful and sobering stuff. As far as Jude is concerned, the judgment of the false teachers has been prophesied. And yet, even though it's been prophesied, in the face of judgment, they still continue in their ways. The false teachers speak harsh words against God. They grumble. They find fault. They moan because they find the standards of God too high. The truth of God's word and the challenge of, God, of the gospel are just too difficult for them. And so they take the easy path. They continue in their ungodly ways. They flatter themselves. They big themselves up. They make themselves feel okay about their shortfallings. They take advantage of others, misleading them with a dressed-up truth. Jude's words on the subject of judgment and against the false teachers are sharp. They're not words that I, and I suspect you, like to engage with. But we have to. And Jude calls us to action. Jude has spent the best part of the first 16 verses of his letter warning of the threat of these false teachers, of condemning, uh, condemning their ungodly ways. And now in verse 17, Jude turns his attention. He does a very big but. But, dear friends, it's as though Jude is saying... Enough about them, enough about those who have been led astray, about those who don't have the Spirit. Now, more importantly, about you. You have the Spirit, and because you have the Spirit, this means that you are able to persevere in the face of these false teachers. How, then, are we to persevere when confronted with people whose understanding of the Gospel is distorted? Or people whose understanding of the gospel is absent? What are we to do when we are being mocked and ridiculed for our faith? Well, according to Jude in verse 20, we are to build ourselves up in that very faith, the most holy faith. The false teachers divide. They see themselves as an exclusive group above everyone else. But Jude speaks of the faith of the true Christian believers as most holy. And I think this is really significant. The word holy means to be set apart. It's almost as though Jude is saying that they, the false teachers, they think they're set apart. They think they're above everyone else. But you, you who are the true believers, you that have truly grasped the gospel, you who know grace, you are really the ones who are set apart. Your faith, 
The faith where Jesus Christ is not just Lord, but also Saviour. This is the faith that is most set apart. So we should build ourselves up in our faith. How do we go about doing that? Well, the faith that is being discussed is a faith that is built upon the grace of Jesus Christ. And where do we find out about that grace? We learn about it in scripture, in God's word. And so we need to immerse ourselves in scripture, to immerse ourselves in God's word, to hunger for knowing more of this grace. We need to not just read the words on the page, but allow them to seep to the core of our being. Now, this is hard. Maybe it's not something you struggle with, but it is for me. I find it really tough to hear the challenges and encouragements and truths of scriptures deep in my inner being. And so for me to build myself up in the faith, yes, I have to read scripture alone by myself with God. But I also have to read it with other people. I have to read it with other believers. I have to read it with Christian friends. Why? Because my Christian friends are the ones that know me well enough, the ones that I trust to challenge me, the ones that can encourage me exactly in the way in which I need encouraging, the ones who will hold me to my word, who will make sure that I'm not all talk and no action. This is what grows my faith and strengthens me. This increases my confidence in who God is, in what he has done, and in what he can do. And so, continuing in verse 20, what else are we to do? Well, according to verse 20, we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. We're not to pray with constant demands telling God what he should do. We are to pray in a way that listens to God, in a way that seeks his will, in a way that's alert to his Holy Spirit moving. Now, I find it hard to get my head around the Holy Spirit. I find it hard to get my head around how prayer in the Spirit is different from prayer not in the Spirit. But what I would like to suggest is that prayer in the Spirit is prayer that comes from me wanting to be obedient to God. Prayer where I want to be, a God, be obedient to God, not prayer where I want God to be obedient to me. Prayer should be about surrendering ourselves to God, about yearning to see God's kingdom come, about desiring to be vessels of his will being done on earth. And it means Praying even in the times when we are faced with trials or persecution or division. Perhaps most of all in those times. That is what I think prayer in the Holy Spirit is. Verse 21. We are instructed to keep ourselves in God's love as we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. God is infinitely merciful. He bears with us when we make mistakes, when we get it wrong, when we fall short yet again. And so it's not that God doesn't reach out to us with his love. There's no greater expression of God reaching out to us with his love than that Jesus died on a cross for us. We have mercy through Jesus' death on the cross and we wait for his further mercy when he returns. 
But we have to be active. We have to actively keep ourselves in that love. We have to actively respond to that mercy. We're not just to be passive recipients. We need to be doing something. The true believers to which Jude writes are called to be merciful to those who doubt. To snatch others from the fire and save them. To others to show mercy mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. Verses 21 to 22. 22 to 23 even. We have a responsibility towards those who are doubting. We have a responsibility towards those who are confused. We have a responsibility towards those who are slipping away or those who've already turned away from the truth of the gospel. We are called to actively have mercy and not just any old mercy, but mercy that comes from the fact that we who are Christians believe in and know a merciful God. Grace and mercy go together. One, the giving of what we don't deserve. The other, the withholding of what we do deserve. The false teachers didn't fully understand grace. Their skewed understanding of grace resulted in them making promises that they simply couldn't fulfill. Their words didn't match up with their actions. And so we need to be different. We need to live in and live out of and speak out of the mercy that we know in Jesus Christ. Now, Jude doesn't advocate a one-size-fits-all approach to those who believe in a distorted truth, who have turned away from the truth or who don't know the truth. Instead, Jude suggests that some might need mercy that snatches them from the fire, And others might need mercy that's exercised with an ever of caution. Mercy that's exercised in a way so the mercy bearer is not sucked in to the other person's way of thinking. So how then are we to discern which situations demand mercy and what kind of mercy they demand and how we should show that mercy? Well, we need to be aware. Sometimes... I think all God requires of us is to sit down and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with someone. To sit down and have a chat. To sit down and listen. At other times, we need to behave more assertively. Sometimes people might just be um, appearing to be simply shut off from the truth. They just don't want to hear about it. At other times... I don't know if you've had this experience, but people actively want to get you round to their way of thinking. They're not just rejecting what you've got to say, but they're actually trying to turn what you've got to say into their way of thinking, to bring you over to the dark side, if you like. We need to be aware. And I think if, after prayerful consideration, there is something to be said, then we should say it. Sometimes, and I have experienced this and I'm sure you do too, the right word from the right person at the right time, even if it is a bit bossy or a bit sharp, can serve as a wake-up call or a reality check. And in that moment, they might not be so grateful. But often, my experience is that I look back and I'm really grateful for those friends that had the courage to confront me, that had the courage to tell me a sharp word or two when I needed one. 
we live in a world where this kind of behavior is hugely countercultural. I think we can sometimes live under the illusion that if we say anything to another that's remotely challenging or difficult, then we're not being loving and Christian. But that's rubbish. As society places a huge emphasis on rights, it nurtures independence, it nurtures individualism. We can do what we want as long as it doesn't affect anyone else, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else's feelings or emotions. What right then do we have to fear in the life of another? Well, we have a big right. We have a big right because we have a responsibility towards the others. Jude has made this very clear, verse 22 and verse 23. We have a responsibility to care for others, and caring isn't always nice. Surely, if we care for someone, what we most want for them is for them to come into a relationship with the one true living God. If this is the case, then we need to show mercy. And sometimes that mercy will be bold mercy. Sometimes that will be mercy that takes everything we have in us. It may well be painful for us and for the person receiving, but we need to show it. This is radical, and I suspect it goes against most of our natural inclinations. But it's the way of mercy that we're called into. Mercy that comes out of our relationship with God, out of the mercy that we who believe receive daily, hourly, minutely from God. That is the mercy we are called to exercise and express. This is quite a heavy going and relentless passage. It may well be different for each of us, but I don't think it's hard to see how the context in which Jude is speaking into us is speaking into is similar to the context in which we each encounter. The challenges each of us face day by day are not always easy. Well, they're not easy. And the challenge Jude puts to us about how we should respond is not an easy one either. Yet, in a letter so full of fear of judgment and challenge to the true believers... Jude just cannot help but praise God. We're in verse 24 to 25 now. In the midst of persecution and judgment, Jude's confidence is in God. The believers to whom Jude writes can persevere, and they can persevere because of who God is. Even when we face challenges, even when we feel like we are battling with sin, temptation, the world around us, when arrows are flying against us from every direction, God can keep us from falling. Life in Christ is a journey, and it's a journey along which there are so many things that can trip us up. But God is bigger and stronger and mightier and greater than any of those things. The journey God calls us on is a journey of transformation. It's a journey of being transformed more and more into his likeness. If we choose God, we are able and we will be able on that day of judgment to stand perfect before God's throne. 
The end of the story, if you like, is completely different for the true believers. Jude has outlined the behaviour of the false teachers and the end that the false teachers will meet. He has outlined the ungodly practices and condemned them. And then from verse 17 onwards, he tells us the other story, the alternative way, the way of grace and of mercy, the way of truth. And in my head, the two ways just don't compare. The second way triumphs. Jude makes it completely clear that mercy can and does and will triumph over ungodliness and false teaching. The way of mercy wins because the way of mercy is at the heart of our relationship with God. God who is glory. God who is majesty. God who is power, God who is authority, and God who is all those things before all ages, now and forevermore. And the triumph of being able to stand perfect before God's throne doesn't just have to be at the end, on that day of judgment. It can and should be our confidence and our strength and our hope every day. It can enable us to show mercy moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, minute by minute. It can enable us to triumph over ungodliness in small ways every day. So, the way of ungodliness or the way of mercy? Eternal fire or perfection before God's throne? I know which I would choose. Amen.